Like most of our platform topics, this one was chosen quite some time ago. Longer even than some of our others, Josh Blinder had told me months ago he hoped I might speak about evil and that he would like to do the music for that. And now what a weekend to be talking about our human legacy of evil in the world. I imagine that many of you, like me, were glued to Facebook and the news on Friday evening, watching events unfold in Paris before our eyes, and then perhaps had heard already or learned new the news from Beirut of killing and violence there the day before. Going around on Facebook has been an announcement or a remembering of great loss of life in Kenya last April due to terrorism. And of course, the list goes on and on and on. It is enough to make you lose faith in humanity. What, then, does a tradition like ours, one that is founded in part on a belief in the potential for goodness in humanity, one that specifically places our faith in humanity, what do we have to say when violence confronts us yet again? There are, of course, Answers to be found in all the things that help to restore that faith. You might know the quote from Mr. Rogers, everyone's favorite philosopher. He remembers as a child something terrible happening and his mother telling him to look for the helpers. Every time we have violence in our world, that quote pops up on my Facebook feed, and I am grateful for it. I am grateful to remember to look for the helpers in those times. In Paris, almost immediately, that hashtag, porte ouverte, open door, so that people could find safe harbor in the city, opening apartments. There was a security guard, too, in Paris who kept one of the suicide bombers from entering the stadium where far more violence would have been inflicted, a detail that is both irrelevant and vital is that the security guard is a Muslim. In Beirut, a hero stood outside the mosque and prevented a bomber from going inside. All over the world, there are those who respond to horrors with bravery and with simple, common decency and humanity. And yet still, the horrors do exist. The violence, the evil perhaps behind them in hearts. As we have been exploring this theme of ancestry, we talked in the first Sunday about 
the importance of knowing our ancestry, knowing our family. I, I talked about Ed Friedman, the systems thinker, who, who said the most important thing, it was important not, not to like our family. We were free to not like them at all. <laughs> but we have to know them. We have to know their story. And I think it's true for the human family writ large as well. The importance of knowing our ancestry and all that that contains. The horrors as well as the beauty to help us understand how to move forward. I looked a little bit into some of the origins of xenophobia, the fear of the other, the fear of the stranger, There are studies showing primates, perhaps our earliest ancestors, particularly male primates, behaving aggressively and violently whenever their territory is threatened. And in some cases, whenever it appeared, they could get away away with it, (laughs) whenever the threat to themselves was low. There are theories that xenophobia is a response to disease threat initially, a way of keeping the tribe safe when disease appeared in another tribe, a kind of closed borders to maintain health. I want to take a moment to speak to religion in all of this. Because goodness knows there are plenty of evils done in the world in the name of religion, including the violence We are reading and learning about now in Beirut and in Paris the killings in Bangladesh of free thought writers and those who have published their works, killings in the name of religion. For that matter, the slavery and genocide of native peoples that was done in the name often of Christianity. And evil perhaps on a different scale, the rejection of LGBTQ people and their children recently by the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, the Mormon Church. One of the responses in Paris was a public singing of the John Lennon song, Imagine. And it is not lost on me that part of what Lennon imagined was a world without religion, that that would be the salvation It's a challenging position for a clergy person, (laughs) someone who believes in the power of religious community to heal and to support, who believes in the power of spiritual experience or wisdom teachings, the power of mindfulness and centeredness to change hearts. Makes you wonder if you got in the wrong business. But religion, in the end, I think, is so much a human tool, a response to our felt experience in the world, an experience which can be one of awe and connection and wonder and oneness, and can also be an experience of isolation and fear. It's tempting to look at some religions, and certainly there is plenty in the media these days that holds up Islam and says there must be violence written into the religion for so many to claim it as a foundation for violent acts. The truth, of course, is that you can find violence written into the Hebrew Psalms and 
into Greek and Roman stories, into any stories and poems and prayers that are written by people. And that desperate and angry people will take the stories and the narratives available to them and wrap them to their use. You can also, though, find calls for peace in each of these texts, each of these traditions. Islam, when it first came into being, carried with it, in fact, a call for peace and connection among warring tribes. It offered a new unity that called to people across blood feuds that had lasted for generations. The prophet Muhammad called people to let go of those feuds and find a sense of connection in a new religious tradition. But we humans, we will use what we have to justify our own ends. Part of what we have is a brain with many different pieces to it. We talk sometimes about our reptilian brain. I always imagine a little lizard just curled up back there. The parts of our brains that move us quickly toward a flight or fight response, the parts that push us apart from each other, and then other parts that allow us to think more deeply. We know even from our most personal and intimate account encounters in our own lives, forget about large-scale war and violence. We know simply from the violence we do to each other with our words, our thoughts, the times when we wish we had reacted differently in a little moment. We know that our brains contain in them the possibility to react just as we wish we would and also in ways that fall far short. And now, too, we are learning more and more about the trauma passed through generations, about the way that our brains are formed, the genetic material we carry that may make us less able to resist our Impulses creating whole groups of people, societies carrying this trauma with them through generations. Some of that research followed survivors of the Holocaust and the way the genetic coding followed through multiple generations, the trauma imprinting itself in ourselves such that we have people who are caught not only politically and economically but also even biologically in a cycle of violence. Shirley Abbott says, we all grow up with the weight of history on us. Our ancestors dwell in the attics of our brains as they do in the spiraling chains of knowledge hidden in every cell of our bodies. Of course, We know we can fight against that weight of history as well or learn from it even better. Many of you have spoken so movingly about the prejudices that you were taught as children, 
the ways of interacting and behaving you learned in your family of origin and how hard you have worked to free yourself from those prejudices, from those patterns, to move beyond the bias that invades our culture. Some of what we have to work against, of course, is not just our own personal biases, but those of the system at large, the systemic oppression that creates inequality, an inequality that allows violent movements to fester, a culture of war that undergirds our economic system. I have been thinking about all this horror, about Paris, about Beirut, about Baghdad, about the Nigerian slaughter in April. And I have been wondering, as many have been wondering, particularly those of us that work in anti-racism and anti-oppression, why we have felt it so deeply in America for Paris. Why someone asked, you know, was I able to turn my, my profile bleu blanc rouge, but not the colors of the Nigerian flag in April? It's a fair and deep question, and certainly there is an answer about the global import we place on black and brown bodies and the one we place on paler bodies, paler skin. And really, when is the last time you heard me minimize the impact of white supremacy and colonialism on the systems of oppression globally? But, you know, as much as I grieve the difference, I also find a piece of hope in it, paradoxically. Because I think for many of us, the grief we feel for Paris is because of the connection we feel with that city. Many of us remember walking on those streets, perhaps, if we have visited Or the city holds in our collective mentality a sense of place, a sense of culture that we feel connected to, even if we haven't been there ourselves. For some of us, we think back to, as President Obama put it, France as our oldest ally in this country, another heart of democracy important to the birth of our country. And when I think in those terms, when I think about, about the fact that it is the relationship that makes us grieve so deeply in this moment, I think about, you know, the, the natural human response to feel things more keenly when they touch us closer. The way that we, we know breast cancer is bad, and yet we are angry about it when it's our sister diagnosed. That's the piece that gives me hope because it makes me think that in fact our ability to grieve fully around the globe needs only an expanded sense of connection. Needs only, I say only, (laughs) 
the work of generations. But needs something our religious tradition, in fact, can offer. We hold up the inherent worth of every person, the idea that every person matters. And what we are inviting is the belief that we are indeed a human family. That our connection doesn't depend only on whom we know, whom we now consider part of the tribe, but that we offer a different way, a different imagining. Of course, we still need help as humans to get there, despite our best intentions. I think then about mindfulness, I think about the meditation that Ellen led us in this morning about all of the loving-kindness meditations that invite us to pull in one more person. Stephen Pinker, the author of Better Angels of Our Nature, posits that this is, in fact, the least violent time in human history. He allows that it may be hard to believe He talks about the casual violence of prehistory and early recorded history, saying that even with our modern instruments of war, which can kill more quickly and more people, that still it is a safer time for the majority of people on earth, that we have an increasing unacceptability around casual violence that more people say it cannot be the way. I think it's hard to believe, partly because, as we know, we can see that violence more readily now. We can read the updates hour by hour. We can find the articles in the foreign press. But there, too, lies the kernel for hope. There, I think, lies the possibility to expand whom we include as family, whom we claim as ancestors and descendants to fight against the xenophobia that keeps us divided from each other. At times like this, I so often wish that I could tell you some brilliant idea for how we will decrease the violence in our world. How we will move beyond it to a world, and I mean a whole world, not a developed world or a Western world, but a whole world where people can feel safe, where humanity's impulses toward xenophobic and violent acts are minimized. I join with many who have said that more than the attacks themselves, they fear what the response of nations will be around the world. Fear increasing war that may come, and at the same time, I think of the refugees flowing out of Syria, casting themselves into the sea in their hope to escape, and weep in sadness that we as a world have failed to protect them. I don't have the answer, 
in the end, it's not really my job. Frankly, there are enough foreign aid workers and military and government workers in this congregation. It might be one of your jobs, and I commend you to it. My job, our job as a community, isn't to figure out the way forward in a political or even in an economic sense. I think the first job is just to grieve together, to hold a space for the sadness. And then perhaps it's to search out goodness and connection where we see it, to name the right as it is revealed to us, as we learn it more each day. To work for a world where more people are able to flourish, able to move beyond the legacies of violence, to claim for themselves a place in this world through love and not through fear and hate. To give each other hope. That might be our job. In fact, because of the way that religion's name has been used to inflict violence, to cover evil with the veil of acceptability, it seems to me that religious communities, ethical communities, are under a special obligation to fight against it, to resist the evil within ourselves as well. There's an old story. I have heard it comes from Native peoples in America, although I do not know the origin. And I've told it before. I'm sure you've heard it. It's the story, you know, of the little boy who asks his grandfather why people do terrible things. Is there something outside us, he asks, that makes us do that? And the grandfather says, no, no. Instead, it's inside us. We have two wolves, an evil one and a good one, and they battle it out inside us. And the little boy says, well, how do you know which will win? And, of course, the grandfather says, it is the wolf you feed that wins. I think about that story a lot when I think about evil. I When I consider all that we as humans are capable of doing, we, I. And yet today, as I think about it, I think about how we are called to create a world where it is possible to feed the good wolf. How we are called to work for systems and societies where all can flourish where the peace-loving and the ethical in each religion can be called forth, where borders of understanding can be crossed. People of all faiths and many faiths come together. We, We have to create the conditions where we want to feed the good wolf, I think, each one of us. And to do that, we have to acknowledge to see the reality of our ancestry, not to turn away or disavow our part in it, our potential and actual role. That requires each of us to look unflinchingly 
but it also requires us to not give up. It means we cannot look away, but we must also look beyond to see the possibility to hope with Steven Pinker that we are indeed moving inch by inch, little by little, into a less violent age. To do our work internally on our own biases, our own impulses, and also to to work for a world where all may do that work themselves. And beyond all that, I think we are called as a community to remember and to remind each other of just what Mr. Rogers said. (laughs) To remember and remind each other of the ways that humanity responds with good, the times we have fed the good wolf so that that is the wolf that wins. I have a quote pinned to my bulletin board, and it's a quote I need at times like this. It's from Will Durant, the historian and philosopher, and he wrote, Civilization is a stream with banks. The stream is sometimes filled with blood from people killing, stealing, shouting, and doing the things historians usually record, while on the banks, unnoticed, People build homes, make love, raise children, sing songs, write poetry, and even whittle statues. The story of civilization is the story of what happened on the banks. We need more banks in this world. We need to shore them up with systems that create equality, that honor the ethical and the good. We need to shore them up with our hope and our love to keep them from eroding. And we need to remember that we and so many live on those banks to claim them as our ancestors, and to prepare them for our descendants.